Welcome to Pierce Podcast. I'm Mike. And this is Orlando. And we're on episode 119. Yeah. It's it's moving. Yeah. And that's a, that's a lot. That's a lot of episodes. <laughs> it is a lot of, but um, you know what I, what makes me happy is that we are now doing interviews, right? It took us a little bit to get to a place where we felt comfortable with interviews, and every guest always has something to bring to the table. Right. It's not like the same old, same old, like I've heard this before. And we always try to bring something different that we haven't had this individual talk about. Yeah. I mean, it's always nice because, I mean, everybody has their own specialties. I mean, even with, you know, Orlando and with me, like we each have things that we focus on. But, you know, for all of you listeners out there who listen to us every single week, a couple times a week, uh, you start to hear some of the, you know, similar things. So it's great when we have new bolos. Yeah. (laughs) Same bolos are the same, you know. Uh, exciting stories that are really not that exciting. That we're always. like, uh, did we tell that story already back on episode 39 or yeah. something? Hopefully not. But uh, yeah, so interviews are great. And we've got an amazing guest on today. Uh, we've been on his show and actually like that was a pretty amazing interview. So I'm excited to have the tables flipped here and see how things go <laughs> now that uh, we're running it. So uh, Dominic, the primetime treasure hunter, what is going on? Hey, man, I'm happy to be here and I'm excited. It's episode 119. That's my lucky number. So, I mean, here we go. We're all set to go. I mean, who knew? <laughs> what are the odds? 119 is his lucky yeah. number. Oh, uh, oh man. <laughs> just amazing. I, I didn't know that before I came on, but, uh, you know, we'll just go with it. <laughs> Stars are aligned. That's I mean, right. everything's just where it needs to be. Yeah. So, and, right, so- and, and real quick, I think I called you prime time tre- treasure hunter, but is it, it's just prime time treasure, right? No, no. Primetime Treasure is the name of the business, but then I became Primetime Treasure Hunter. There was this uh, big evolution. I didn't actually come into this as starting things off and saying, hey, I'm Primetime Treasure Hunter, like from the very beginning. It didn't start off that way. If you watch a lot of my my early YouTube videos, it, it, it actually took a while for me to say my intro because it was always Hey, it's Dominic from the Primetime Treasure Hunter. Or sorry, it's Dominic from the Primetime Treasure eBay store and YouTube channel. Oh, nice. And then later on, people started, as it caught on, people said that I needed some kind of persona. Like I needed right. more of a nickname. And so since the business was Primetime Treasure, I actually held a, a little kind of a contest almost in my uh, Facebook group at the time. And I was asking people to throw out ideas because I had ideas. And um, someone uh, in the group threw out Primetime Treasure Hunter, which was perfect for me because actually I just had him on my show for interview, Craigslist Hunter. Mm. He's someone I really look up to. And so I said, this is perfect because I do hunt for treasures. Yeah, It works with the treasure theme. There's you know the Craigslist Hunter part. And I said, this is great. That's what we're going with. It's one of those things when you hear it, you just know it and you just. That's it. I'm just go with it. Probably for you guys, like when you guys came up Pure Also podcast, it just sounded perfect. Yeah, yeah. Just like that's it. We're just gonna go with that. When you know, you know, right? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Well, we kind of knew, but it, it worked. Yeah. PHP works. So, all right. So, on Instagram, you are Prime underscore Time underscore Treasure, and on YouTube, you are Prime Time Treasure. Hunter. Hunter. Okay. Yep. Just wanted to yep. clarify. Yeah. We want to make sure our listeners can find you because I mean, I'm sure many of them are already following you and, and watching your stuff and listening to your stuff. But if they're not, um, by the time they're done with this episode, they're going to be looking for you. So, uh, super I excited so. That'd be great. I'm not hard to find. <laughs> All right. So tell us a little bit about, about you. I mean, we, we know a lot, but you know, there's some new listeners, just a quick, like, Hey, what sure. got you to reselling? What, what, what do you sell? And, and so on. 
Well, I sort I really pretty much have a kind of a weird background in history, I guess. I mean, um, I have a full time job that has nothing to do really with reselling. Uh, I actually work a full time in a hospital as a board certified neuropsychologist. So during the day, I'm evaluating children and adults with known or suspected brain injury and brain disease. And uh, then I kind of flip the switch when I get home and on the weekends, and I have this kind of alter ego uh, character in which I become the primetime treasure hunter. Oh, and nice. so uh, I specialize in comic books, uh, but all things that are vintage and collectible. So, um, you know, comics is my core, my niche that I that I know uh, best and that I will always have something related to that on there. But um, I also go into all sorts of other areas in my treasure hunting videos. So I go to a lot of the state sales, garage sales, uh, flea markets. I set up uh, private uh, ads uh, in which people would reach out to me or I'll reach out to them on, you know, Facebook Marketplace and pick up collections here or there. But, you know, if you watch my treasure hunts, I'm getting things from, you know, old vintage cameras to uh, picking up, um, you know, t-shirts and, and, and shorts and jeans and, um, you know, signs and you, you name it. I mean, books, non-comic books. I mean, there's all sorts of things pretty much if it sells, if it's valuable, I'm interested in it. I love it. And I love yeah. it. I love like the connection there. Like it really sounds like, like the fact that you do so much with comic books and you're into that type of stuff, because your story kind of sounds like a superhero story. Like I could pitch that like brain doctor by day, treasure hunter by night, right? Like first edition of PHP comics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think about that at first, but then as it's, things started to evolve, I said, you know what? It kind of is like that. You know, it's like Clark Kent. He's like the newspaper editor. Then at nighttime, you know, he switches into like, you know, superhero yeah. mode. So, uh, you know, or like with Spider-Man, you know, working as a, you know, Peter Parker as a photographer during the day. So I said, you know what, that kind of makes sense. As far as I knew, there's no neuropsychologist superhero yet or, or reseller for that matter. That's so right. hopefully I'm unique in that way. <laughs> you live among us. All right. Hey, so, so I, you know, I did some research on you and we talked about that before the podcast a little bit. He calls it research, but it, you know, we're not going to call it stalking. No, like, we but, won't do that. But, but my background's in history and historians always want to know like the context and the background of individuals. So, you know, I noticed like your story, like you've been selling since about like early 2000s. I think it said like, you know how it tells you like started yeah. in 2000, whatever. So I had a question for you because I always sure. want to know how has eBay transformed? And we're talking about 20 years Right. Since yeah. like maybe you bought the first thing or sold the first thing. So what are some changes that you've seen over that time? Yeah, it's funny having that perspective. I did start on eBay uh, in 2000, even maybe a little bit before that, like late, late 1990, like 1999, 2000 ish. But um, I actually started it because, um, you know, at the time it was just you know becoming more and more popular. And um, I was attending graduate school at uh, Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And nearby, they have this big um, outdoor, mostly outdoor, but also indoor flea market area called the Swap Shop. And my wife and I um, would go down there and we would just try to find things that caught our eye that we thought looked valuable. We'd pick it up for cheap. We'd bring it home. We'd put it on eBay. And so a couple th things that are differences right then and there. So um, I'm holding up for people who listen to this on audio. I'm holding up my cell phone right here. We didn't have anything really like this, or if we did, there were no apps on there at that point. So there was no way you could check comps at that time. Mm. Uh, so everything just had to kind of go by eye. And that was actually good as I look at it now, as I look back, because that 
help to develop a skill set, almost like a sixth sense. I've mm. heard resellers talk about this at, at some points that they feel like they've kind of developed that where they could just scan areas and hone in on what's valuable versus what might be more kind of junky stuff to avoid. And there were certainly many successes, but there were also many failures where we'd buy something, we'd be convinced, wow, this is amazing score. And we come home and find even back then on eBay that there were 15 people that had that same book up or that same peanuts item that you thought was valuable. And it turns out that it's not worth anything. You're not going to make your money back on it. So um, the other thing that was really different was the form of of payment uh, because um, you know, back then, uh, their PayPal wasn't really up and going at that point. And so the main way we were getting payments was we would sell something and then we would get payment via a check or a money order. Sometimes people would even sell, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, even send uh, cash, uh, in the mail. So it was, it was those three things. And you had to wait, like, you know, usually about a week to get your you know payment. If they were closer, maybe it would be a, a few days, uh, and then you could send your item out. Mm. So once PayPal came around, I mean, it really transformed things, and uh, you know, it was just night and day. It was amazing. Do you find that it's it's still the same? I mean, I always I always hear you know people saying reselling hasn't really changed; just the tools have changed. So is it is it still is it still viable? Because you know, when I hear about eBay in the early 2000s, late 1990s. It was more like pretty much anything you put up would sell. Now you're saying there are some things that wouldn't sell or maybe they'd sit for a while where now it just seems so saturated, but it, it there's still the opportunity. What, what's your take on that? Well, yeah, definitely more and more people have gotten involved. I think it's actually, I mean, you know, one other big difference you have to keep in mind too, is that back then it was only auctions. And so, Mm. you know, they didn't have any option then to just buy it now. That was something that came on a little bit later, but um, with more and more people getting involved and the more, the more you open, like, because back then there are some people that don't want to take the chance of a, of an of an auction, and so um, and there's also a bunch of people who don't want to wait around for an auction. But so as they opened it up to more and more different um, modalities, that got more people involved in, in buying, and that got more people involved in selling. The more flexibility you put into the platform, so that's naturally going to mean that there's more competition. So there are a lot of categories now that are way more saturated uh, than they were back then, and I and I do think it is becoming more and more uh, competitive and it can be more difficult to kind of separate yourself out, which is why it's going to take some extra work. But at the same time, there's also more platforms available to sell on now than there were back then. I mean, it was really Yahoo auctions and it was eBay pretty much. I mean, but now you have all these, I mean, Amazon wasn't even open to third-party sellers back then. And so now you have all these different sites, you know, you have Mercari and ThreadUp and, um, you know, Poshmark and there's just so many, you could just keep naming and there's so many specialty ones too. Like, you know, there's ones just for, you know, for sneakers and, you know, it just on and on and on. I mean, you could just, you know, I could, you could probably name like 30 or 40 reselling platforms. So, um, it's, it's, it's good and it's, and it's bad, but, uh, you've got it. Bottom line is you have to find a way to separate yourself out, uh, from the pack. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's awesome. And, and it's encouraging too, because, you know, new sellers are coming in all the time and, and it's, I think it's human nature to kind of think like, oh, I missed opportunities or, you know, I'm not going to be able to, to, to do the things other people have done. They have a head start, but but like I said, in reality is like you can still do things to make yourself better and get and 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 be successful in this. And it seems like you're really successful as a reseller. And I, what I admire about that is 
you're not full-time, right? Like there are a lot of people who are full-time. They're able to devote a lot of time to this, uh, but you do this part-time. How much time would you say outside of, you know, working in the hospital do you put into working as a reseller? Um, well, I, you know, the reselling component for me has so many different things beyond just reselling because there's the sourcing mm -hmm. and there's of course the listing and the shipping. But then beyond that, there's a lot of social media uh, engagement that I'm doing. So, you know, I have the YouTube channel. I have the Facebook group, the Facebook reselling resource center, which just went over 15,000 members in there. So I Congrats. do a ton of stuff in there. Uh, the Instagram just went over 5,000. The YouTube channel is almost at 11,000 now. So I put a lot of work mm -hmm. uh, into that and have over the last few years. And so that, that is part of it as well. But I would tell you that outside of work and then outside of family, I pretty much pour all of my extra time into this because I do love it and I'm really passionate about it. And I just want to keep growing it and, and developing it. And so, uh, you know, pretty much it really almost feels like sometimes that I'm almost putting the equivalent of a, another full-time job uh, into this. Yet I also have another thing that I do, which is I run a medical website called mm. medfriendly.com where I generate a lot of revenue through there, through a, a medical blog that I run. So people pay me to put up blog posts. And so that's a, yet another thing that I have to manage oh, on the yeah. side. So there's, there's all these different things that are, you know, that I have to keep kind of bouncing back and forth between. And I'm constantly juggling things to make sure that I could keep my, keep my head above the water, <laughs> but it's a, a lot of time, but I, you know, I love it. I absolutely love it. And is that just like who you are? Like you're just, you're just naturally a hustler. You got to have a lot of yeah. things going or um, are you driven more just by like, this is fun. Like what is your motivation to like do so much? That's a good question. I'm, I've, I've, I'm really a very goal driven person. I love to accomplish things. I just, I get a lot of satisfaction out of, out of doing that. Um, I think it's just part of my, part of my personality and just, you know, very driven to want to be, uh, I, I don't even want to necessarily, it's easy to say you want to be the best. Right. I mean, I want to do as best as I can given my situation. I mean, like I know like realistically being part-time, I'm not going to sell more stuff than Craigslist Hunter has, you know, it's yeah. just like, so, you know, but given the situation that I'm in, I want to try to do the best that I can, you know, in that situation also set a good role model and example for my kids who are 14 and 15. And I, I think I've done that because they work so hard in school mm. and they do so well in school. I mean, I just came down from seeing my daughter and she's just, just from the moment she came over, she's been working hard on her homework, getting that done. My son's the same way. And so I'm, I'm proud of that. I want to set that example for them. My dad set that example for me. Mm. And, um, the first person I ever worked for at a convenience store for years when I was a teenager set that same exact example of, you know, always making sure you're working hard, putting forth a lot of effort. So I think if it's role modeled for you that, uh, that you kind of ingrain that into part of your personality and you mm. keep bringing that forwards into other things you're doing. Okay. That's awesome. So what does your mo model look like? So I, what I mean is I have several questions when it <laughs> tied into it. So, you know, how, when do you source? How do you source? Are you fast, nickel, slow dime? Are you multiple platforms? I know I'm dropping a lot on you. So, no, so if you want to flesh that out, you know, I'd love to hear. I just, I'm interested. Uh, for me, now this is going to depend on what part of the country you're from, because there, I love to go to estate sales where I am in central New York. Estate sales are generally amazing. There's some exceptions. You need to know which dealers to go to and which ones to avoid. But I, I say this only because 
there may be some listeners in some areas of the country, like some areas of Florida or California, where every estate sale could be like the crazy, you know, out of this world prices where you can't really touch the stuff and do anything with it in terms of reselling. Mm. But if you're in an area where you, you know, can get some decent uh, deals, for me, estate sales are the best because I feel like it's the most efficient use of my time because <laughs> don't get me wrong, I go around to garage sales, but I feel like I have one big giant garage shell in this whole house yeah. that I could just go through and I could, st- and with being patient and just being dedicated to, you know, uh, whatever, you know, room that I'm in at the time and just focusing in on and then just slowly systematically going through it. I feel like I'm able to pick all the different treasures out of there and uh, find things that a lot of people are just easily overwhelmed by. I, I can't tell you how many times I'm in a room and someone just says, this is overwhelming. Like the moment they walk in, they just say, oh my God, I'm overwhelmed. I'm walking out and they just leave. Oh, and man. I just laugh and I'll be in the same room for an hour and I'm just picking treasure after treasure. out. And meanwhile, you know, 30, 40, 50 people just cycled in and out because they're just not patient. They don't want to dig through boxes. They don't want to look up top above a shelf. They don't want to open a drawer. They don't want to look underneath a bed. All these are things I love doing. I don't mind flipping through a yearbook and finding something really valuable inside of there. Wow. I know. So, um, you know, I love doing that type of stuff. So I really enjoy that. And also I have a good relationship with the estate sale dealers, which allows me to purchase things in bulk. Mm. And so I could walk out of there with boxes of valuable stuff and I'm only paying sometimes for for all this stuff. So I show that in my haul videos uh, on my channel, but I also take trips over to the flea market. I also, you know, I do the garage sales. I do the rummage sales. And I also, as I mentioned earlier, I set up private ads on Craigslist in which I target certain niches. Like I'll put up an ad just for comic books or Mm -hmm. one for estate clearances or one for uh, Funko Pops, for example, or Mm -hmm. one for Masters of the Universe figures. I'll put all these different ads up and um, people will reach out to me and say, hey, I have a collection of this stuff. Would you like to come check it out? And I've gotten some of my best scores through doing that, which is wow. kind of gets into what I was saying earlier, which is that you can't just always sit back and expect that, um, you know, OK, I'll just go out to a garage sale and I'll just limit myself to that. Mm. You know, you got to try to build opportunities for yourself. And, you know, uh, and that's one of the ways you could do it is by putting up those types of ads and creating situations for yourself. Like I've had situations where I'm literally invited to go to a house and I'm the only one allowed to pick the entire estate. I have zero competition. Wow. So unlike in a regular estate sale where there's 30, 40 people trying to grab stuff, I'm the only person I have free reign of the house. Yeah. So, and I think to myself, when I do that, I say, I created that. Yeah. So you've, you've got to create your own opportunities sometimes. Mm. All right. So I struggle a little bit with the ad thing. Cause I've, I've had, so I have a friend of mine who's been reselling eBay for years and he hasn't done it, but he's always telling me, Orlando put some ads on Craigslist, put some ads on offer up. But I always have this concern. I don't know. I've never shared this. So this is a pure podcast first. I always fear that when I show up to this place that they're going to be expecting me to pay a lot more for something. And I, it won't be the same as if I just randomly showed up. And so, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'll tell you the way around that. Okay. So I actually I have a couple of videos up about this. I actually just did two recently about setting up a Craigslist, Craigslist ads and sourcing on Craigslist. I also did one about Facebook Marketplace as well. And I have another one. It's an older one. It's one of my earlier videos where it's called something along the lines of how to source in the winter. Just type the word in winter. You'll find it on my channel. But um, I show examples of my ads. And one of the things that I say in all of my ads is I am purchasing this for business purposes, for inventory, 
and I am not going to pay retail prices. I let them know what I'm there uh, for. Okay. I am specifically targeting the person who, and I say, I actually say this, I think it's best to just be upfront. I say, if you are in a pinch, you need quick cash. I'm your guy. Mm. This is who you call. You, you know, you want someone reliable who's going to come out to you or, or who you could come out to and meet somewhere if you're comfortable. You know, that's, that's what I'm here for. If you just, if you need space, you know, your Funko Pop collection is taking over your house and your, your wife can't take it anymore. And she's saying it's either you or the Funko Pops, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, call me because I will clear them out tonight. Mm. And that's another thing. You have to be quickly responsive because if you don't respond fast to those inquiries, they're going to move on to somebody else. Right. And, uh, and they'll also send out that same message to multiple people. And I know that because they'll send the same thing out to multiple ones of my ads. Like they'll oh, say, nice. Hey, I have a Funko pop collection to my estate sale ad. And then the same person writes, Hey, I have a Funko pop collection to my Funko pop bag. Cause uh, they don't know it's the same person. Right. So they're, they're sending out to as many people. And most people, the way they operate is whoever responds first and seems like they're, you know, a decent person responsible, mm. then that's who they're going to go with. So you got to be quick on it, but that's how you could avoid that is by letting them th know that upfront. So what's a good threshold for you? Is it 25% of what you're looking to sell it for? Is it 50%? Does it vary on the item? Like if, you know, cause sometimes, you know, you have a really good haul and you're willing to pay up and do 50% cause you're going to get a nice profit. But sometimes you're like, this is going to sit a little bit longer. It's going to be a slow dime. How do you, how do you determine that? Um, well, it, it depends on what it is. So uh, if there were like some individual uh, items and usually I, I tend to, I tend to buy in bulk. So okay. it's not usually like an individual piece, but if we're talking about individual pieces, I like to be able to ideally try to triple my money on it. So okay. um, that's one of the things that I look at, but, but generally I'm trying to buy, I'm trying to figure out a good unit price for things. So it, it depends on the item. I'll give you two examples. So for comic books, which I specialize in, in general, I am trying to get comic book collections for approximately anywhere between 10 to 20 cents per comic book. So it averages about 15 cents. Um, now, that doesn't mean I would not in some situations be willing to pay up a little more, but I would have to know that there were some things in there that were really, really worth me doing that. But on average, if I'm buying hundreds or thousands of comic books, that's what I want to get it for at that, at that bulk rate. And so I try to work a lot of those negotiation out, by the way, uh, ahead of time uh, over, over email, just so I could get a sense. Cause you you don't want to waste your time and go there. And the person says they, they want $3,000 for something that you right. were only going to pay 200 for. So I try to clear that up, at least try to feel like we're in the same ballpark. Now, if I could get it that we're in the same ballpark, I'll say, you know what, we're close enough Let's just meet up in person. And I feel confident enough in my negotiation skills that we could work something out, you know, throw a little bit of this in. I'll give you a little bit more for the, you know, mm. you could just, you know, just kind of wheel and deal. Now, if it's Funkos, for example, um, that's a different situation. So those you're trying to get them for about $2 uh, a piece if you're a reseller. And, and also you've got to know that a bunch of those Funkos are not just the common junky ones that are going to overproduce ones that are only going to sell for 10 bucks or less. Like you've got to know that there's like, I just sold one the other day, resident evil Funko pop nemesis for $50. Like mm -hmm. you've got to know there's some gems in there like that. Um, so that you could buy some of the, the lower price ones, but you're getting that unit price, uh, 
you know, down to a certain number. That's your goal. You got to try to figure that out for whatever collection is you're looking for. And then that that's what drives you. And you just basically, I just explained to people it's, it's a numbers game and that's, that's what I'm looking at. Nice. Now, I would say for me, only recently have I gotten comfortable or have become comfortable in telling people I'm a reseller when I'm when I'm shopping for stuff, right? Like when I was sourcing for the longest time, it was I didn't feel comfortable. I felt odd telling people. And I thought, at least in some situations, like I was getting a better deal if they thought I was buying it for personal use or like, you know, this is mine. I want to collect it because it does seem like some people want things to go to a good home and they don't want to know that like, hey, you're going to buy this thing that meant something to me and then you're going to sell it. Is there ever times when you don't tell people you're out garage sales or something like that and and you kind of make it seem like, hey, I love this thing. This would be so nice. Or do you always tell I'm a reseller? Well, I don't I don't necessarily volunteer it. Mm. I mean, um, you know, then again, I'm also not averse to letting somebody know if uh, if somebody asks me. I mean, one of the things that I would do in a situation that 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 you were mentioning there is that um, I try to emphasize to people, especially when I'm buying collections from people and it's something that they have an emotional attachment to, I let them know that I'm also a collector, not Mm. just a a reseller. And that um, I'm going, I let them know, I'm going to take care of your items. I'm going to pack them all and ship them all. And I'm going to get them into the hands of people who really do want them and who really would, you know, cherish them. So uh, that's, that's my goal with Mm. with their items. And that's one of the enjoyments of doing reselling is that you get to get these items that were stuck somewhere that they weren't in circulation, they weren't being used. And now you're bringing them back into use. Um, so, so I do let people know, I mean, the only way I would avoid it is if I knew there was someone who was really averse like it's just very clear that they were averse to, you know, uh, resellers. Like mm. you might've heard that from a friend or you could kind of tell the way they're interacting and the way they're jacking up prices when they're negotiating with people mm. so there once in a while, there's a few people who I would avoid saying it just because of that. Um, but by and large, I have not uh, found that I've had a problem with uh, mentioning that and letting people know. In fact, I've been pleasantly surprised how many people actually say to me, even a state sale dealers will say, he's a reseller, make sure you give him a good deal because he needs it for his business. Nice. I've even had people do that at outdoor you know, flea market type events who, who just know what I do. And they, you know, will say, you know, okay, you know, I know you're doing this for business and you need, you know, you need this for inventory here, let's work out a deal. So, um, very rarely have I had someone say to me, yeah, you know, you're doing this for reselling. I don't want to sell it to you. Mm. There's going to be people like that, but the way I figure it, there's so many fish in the sea to shop from. I'm like, all right, I'll just go to the next person. Nice. Yep. Yep. <laughs> all right. So it seems you get a lot of wins. Can you tell me of a time when you just had to, a couple of examples where you just had to walk away and what got you to walk away? Cause that's the, to me, it's harder to walk away when it's something you're passionate about. You know, like I would say a lot of my bad buys have been something that I was more emotional than I needed to be. I didn't show it, I show it, but in my mind, I'm like, I really need to buy this. So how do you walk away? Well, give me some examples and how do you walk away dumb? Um, well, I always say that sometimes the way you make the best deal and the person who usually does make the best deal is the person who does let the other person know that you are willing to walk away. Mm. Um, because a lot of negotiation has to do with positioning yourself for proper leverage. And if you have a lot of, and this is one advantage to having a lot of inventory, you know, I don't need to buy another, a single comic book. Now I will buy a great collection if one comes up, but I have plenty. So 
I have the ability then to go into a negotiation situation saying, listen, if I can't get it for the price I need it at, then, okay, I'm sorry. It's just not going to work for me. And so I'll do that with comic book collections. Or I remember one guy, I went over to his house. We struck up a good conversation over the phone based on a Craigslist ad. He had a really nice Funko Pop collection, but it was very obvious that his price on it was just, he wasn't going to move too much off of it. And we talked a little bit afterwards and he tried to lower it a little bit, but we could not quite get to the right number. And I drove quite a ways to get out there. I mean, I'd say probably, I mean, maybe for some people won't sound that much, like let's say 45 minutes to an hour or so. And, um, I wanted to make the deal so bad guys, but, um, I, I just, it just didn't make sense with the numbers. And I just said, I'm sorry, if you can't get it to that number, I've, I've got a bail on it. And, uh, you know, I just wound up driving back and, you know, talking to my wife about it over the, we call her Mrs. Primetime, uh, <laughs> over the uh, phone on the way back and just like, look, you know, I already have a bunch of these collections and just got to try to take the emotion out of it and say, you know, I just wasn't, it just didn't make financial sense. That's why looking at the numbers could help so much because the numbers could kind of bring logic to overcome emotion. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you tell yourself that, like, and I tell myself, I'm, I've told myself once I, got really, really back into this again. Um, you know, kind of hardcore that I wasn't going to get emotionally attached to the, to the items. And so, um, that's really helped me. I've kind of had that as like a guiding principle throughout my negotiation. So that helps too. If you have kind of a mindset, you have principles that that guide you like that, that could help you too. Very good. Are there things though that you buy? Cause obviously you said you're a collector. Um, do you ever go not necessarily wanting to add something to your own collection, but you find something, you buy it, and then you're like, I just can't sell this. Like, this is too perfect. I need it in my collection. Are you are you willing to sell things even in your own collection? Um, well, I'm not right now I'm not willing to sell things in my own collection. Um, because ironically, that's how this all kind of got all started back up again for me to get crazy into reselling because when I was younger. Uh, I'm talking late teens. I sold my comic book collection to buy a Sega Genesis. Oh man! <laughs> wow. So something I have um, regretted doing. But although I love that that Sega Genesis, that, that was amazing. I had fun with that. But um, I wanted to. I was trying to, sh- to kind of reconstruct my collection as much as possible when I got older. So, mm. cause I was always telling my kids about it. And as they got older, they were getting, telling me they were kind of mad at me. They're like, why did you sell that? Why did you do that? We would have loved to see it. So I was trying to reconstruct it. And as I started reconstructing it and purchasing it, I started to realize from uh, dealers how much money they were making buying comic book collections and, and flipping them. And I, and so I said, you know what, I need to start trying to get back into this again. And uh, that's what got me started back into it. So, um, that collection, I don't want to sell that again for that reason. Cause mm. I just had reconstructed a lot of it. Um, uh, but I will, sometimes I will go out and I will get something. I'll think it looks pretty cool. And I'll say, you know what, I don't want to quite sell it right now. Cause I have so many other items. I'll just display it for a little bit nice. and then I'll eventually sell it, but I don't technically consider it added to my collection. It's just kind of hanging out so I could look at it for maybe a year or so. (laughs) So are you, are you just strictly eBay? Is that where you sell? Do you, or do Um, you go to the other platforms? I'm not on the other, uh, I'm not on the other uh, online platforms. However, um, I do sometimes purchase some bigger, bulkier items. Like let's say for example, a big Chinese vase uh, that I got. 
I don't want to ship that. It's too, it's, it's too prone to, to breakage. I mean, this thing was huge. I got it for five bucks, sold it for 50 on Facebook marketplace or uh, something else that I've shown uh, in my videos, especially this past summer is my wife does a good job with um, furniture uh, flipping. So we'll either buy furniture pieces or pick, or we'll pick them up uh, for free that someone's just giving away. We find them on the side of a curb, uh, bring it home, restore it, and then flip it for pretty good money on Facebook Marketplace, or we'll put it on OfferUp, or you know, let go or Craigslist. So we, we do use the local apps, but for the vast majority of what I'm personally going out and, and sourcing, uh, it's eBay. Nice. Do you do like when you restore furniture? Are you doing like the shabby chic, like chalk paint? Are you yes, like, nice. yes. I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> but my I, for that part of the operation, I am the muscle. So nice. don't say you know go pick that up. There's something over here. Like, you know, last minute, go grab that. I, you got to get this, please. So I go out, I get it. I throw it in the, you know, in the primetime treasure mobile and I bring it back. But I've shown on the video how she, uh, cre she creates her own, my wife, she creates her own chalk paint wow. of a video that, that sh shows that in one of the videos, uh, how she does that. She went out and, you know, and, and bought the materials just to make homemade uh, chalk paint. And the difference, like, you know, you get to see the before and the after on how she does all these different types of projects. And, you know, and flips it. So uh, that's her job. She's like the artisan. Nice. Um, again, I'm just the, uh, I'm just the muscle for that part. Man, you guys are a family of hustlers, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, she's, uh, she's, she really, um, she, like I said, she, she is really very artistic. I, mm -hmm. I'm trying to, she, she also does do some crafty stuff too. Like she'll take comic book covers, for example, that are, um, from books that were destroyed. Like we can't use the book, but as a cool cover and she'll take it and she'll decoupage it onto a frame. And then nice. we're selling the frame for like the decoupage frame for like 30 to $40. Nice. So, and, and this was a comic book that was destroyed. You couldn't use it. And traditionally, like someone would just take that and just throw it in the trash. Uh -huh. But she's finding a way to repurpose something that I bought that we can't use and then and flip it. So there's creative things like that. So I'm trying to get her more into, you know, doing that part of the business, which she did a lot again over the summertime. She's taking a break now over the winter, but you know, she'll get, she'll get back into it again as the weather warms up. And nice. that's awesome. So yeah. it's, it's interesting to me, the collectibles market. Cause I notice as of recent, like, cause the economy is so hot right now is that sometimes some collectibles they'll be, you know, they'll be worth a ton of money for like two or three weeks. And then it dies really fast. Right. But if you can find something from, let's say the eighties, nineties, or even before, like that has, you know, value over a longer span of time. So based on that, you know, how, how do you, how do you, how do you sell your stuff on eBay? Are you slow dime fast nickel? Do you need to move stuff quicker to get more capital or how does it work for you? No, see, now this is one of the things where I feel like I have, cause you can always go back and forth in terms of advantages and disadvantages between working, doing this full time and doing it at part-time. And I think if you're doing it full-time, there's going to be more pressure on you to, to try to turn stuff over fast because you need to have that cash flow more. Uh, for me, you know, I have the full-time job that I could lay back on. I have the additional money from the medical website that I could lay back on. So that gives me more leverage that I could let things sit. And when people are sending me offers, that's not quite what I want. You know, I could still kind of feel comfortable with letting that one go and, you know, waiting for someone who's going to come in with a better offer uh, uh, down the road. So I'm more uh, st strategically patient with uh, the items that I have up. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I do price it to 
sell it if there's competition for the item. So if I have something that a lot of other people have, I try to beat them on price, provided that that person has the item in a very similar condition to mine and their feedback is similar. If their feedback is worse than mine or the condition is worse than mine, then I'm not going to price it under that. But if all things are equal, I'll try to beat them on price so I can move it faster. But then again, if I have a pretty unique piece, like for example, this this is a graded comic book right here, Battlefront uh, number 25. This is the uh, single highest graded comic book uh, issue for this at a 5.0 wow. the next lowest down is a 2.5 so i will price this high and i will be waiting i'll be totally willing to let this sit for a long time i don't care until someone is willing to pay close to what i have the price for for that because i have a unique piece there that no one else has so for those types of items i don't mind i'll, I'll sit on them wow it's good to know yeah that's impressive yeah. i mean now i know so you obviously were interested in comics and and one thing that we're really big on Pierce podcast is it's really easy for people to get like almost, you know, starstruck with like the types of things people are selling and like, I've got to do shoes because look how much money are in sneakers, but they're, they're, they're not interested in sneakers or things like that. So there's probably some of our listeners who are going to be like, I've got to jump in comic books or do something like that, uh, but they might not be interested. But then there are those people who are like, I I would love to be interested. This does sound like something I'm, I'm, I, I could be passionate about, but they don't know anything about comic books. So they don't know anything about certain types of collectibles. What would your advice be as far as where's a good place to start so that they can build some knowledge, maybe kind of get their feet wet in it without, you know, becoming too overwhelmed. Yeah. So it's funny because one of the things I've been trying to do on my, on my YouTube channel is trying to bring together um, different segments of the YouTube community, because I feel like we're carved out into separate, all these separate niches. So for example, we have the reselling YouTube community, right? But we also have, um, a, there's a whole comic book segment of the YouTube uh, community. There's a whole action figure section and toy section of the YouTube community. There's a Pokemon uh, section. So there's all these different sections and we're all kind of segmented off. And so I've been trying to bring people like that from those separate uh, channels onto my channel to kind of you know, bring people together a little bit more. Like I had uh, Michael D. French from Retro Blasting on who does a lot of stuff on vintage uh, 80s toys. And so I bring that up because you got to look beyond just the resell, the traditional reselling community that we have. Like, you know, we, everyone knows who all the big name people are there. You got to look outside of that. So there are comic book, um, you know, YouTube channels where they'll just go out and they'll do a comic book haul, just like we would do a haul. You know, mm -hmm. we go out and we go to a garage sales, estate sales, we come back, we show off what we got. These people are going out to a comic book store and they're coming back with all sorts of goodies and they're showing off and they're explaining what it is that they got and how valuable it is. I loved watching that stuff and I still do. And that's a great way to learn for somebody uh, who is new. Uh, on my channel, I have a whole playlist on learning all about comic books and how to ship them, pack them, um, you know, identify which ones could be more valuable. Uh, and I do a what's sold on eBay video every month and I go over to top 10 uh, things that sold and inevitably there's something related to comic books that's in there. So that's another way to, um, you know, to, figure that out too, is by, you know, checking out, uh, something like that, that would be over on my channel. You know, you'd have to know someone does something with that to, you know, to gain some kind of knowledge like that. There's also, by the way, uh, great Facebook groups about comic books. Um, mm. there's, there's a ton of them out there, just like there's great reselling groups. There's ones that are just about that. And so you can learn a lot just 
just through there. So, you know, it's just like with me guys in terms of like when I jump back into this, focusing on the comic books and collectibles, my main weakness area was, or one of them was clothing. Um, now I always have clothing up now, but when I started, I didn't, and I was never sourcing it. And I learned from watching other resellers. I was watching Steve Rakin talking about clothes. I was watching, you know, Casey talking about, you know, clothing brands. And I was, you know, I got a guide to, to learn more about different brands. And I was going on eBay and I was clicking on their sourcing guidance. And I was looking mm-hmm. through all the, the different clothing categories and, and learning what are the top ones. I was going on to uh, Poshmark, even though I don't sell on there. And I was trying to learn from Poshmark sellers on Instagram, what are, and going through their stories and saying, what are they going out and sourcing at thrift stores and Goodwill and flipping? I didn't know a single thing about Christian Louboutin shoes and how to identify them. And now I know if I see that red bottom at a thrift store, that that's something that I want to pick up because there could be, it could be a couple hundred dollar pair of shoes and people are finding stuff like that. So you've got to kind of make a commitment to dive into a new niche area that you want to learn a little bit more and just try to absorb as much of it as you can all different mediums. That's awesome. Do you uh, do you buy comics like new, like when they drop on whatever it is Wednesday, Thursday, and like read them? Uh, like I, I, I used to, I used to until I got back a few years ago into um, flipping them. Um, it's funny because as you mentioned that, that again gets back into how it's kind of ironic because in the next few days, by the time this airs, this will already have been done. Um, but I was reading, uh, I was reading comic book one night. And I came across this ad. It's everyone who reads comic books knows this. There's a double page ad in a lot of older comic books for a place called Mile High Comics in Denver, Colorado. And it's the world's largest comic book store. And I opened it up. I never told this story. So this is a first on, I was going to say this on I'm telling it here on Pure Hustle Podcast. No one knows this. (laughs) So I opened it up and I'm reading it. I'm looking at it. It's like Mile High Comics. I'm like, you know, I love doing stuff like this. I go back into old reading material and then I look it up and see whatever happened to the place or the Mm. person. You know, I like to do that. So this is an older book, you know, from the 70s or 80s. So I I look it up and I say, wow, there's, you know, they're still around. And um, I typed it on YouTube and I found that the guy has a YouTube channel and I opened it up. I watched the video, the the owner, Chuck Rosansky, who's a legendary guy in the comic book community. And I was blown away by his YouTube video, which shows off this million square foot store that's filled with comics from front to back. I mean, his collection was, it's massive. It's completely insane. And I was blown away by it. And I said, I, and I've always, I always want to run my own business. And Mm. so I said, you know, this is, this is really perfect. I mean, this is a great way to jump back into doing the reselling and start an actual reselling business. I'll focus it on comic books. And then I just started branching out from there, but that actually got me into it with back into it, you know, much more forcefully was, was actually reading the comic book as a collector coming across the ad, researching the ad, finding the YouTube video. And that got me also more, it wasn't the only thing that got me into YouTube, but it was one of the things that got me into it was just, you know, looking at that and just kind of, just kind of blew me away. So, but, you know, just to go back a little bit more about your question is that comic books nowadays, the it's sad. The prices are so much, you know, $3.99, yeah. $4.99, you know, back in the day, you know, when I, and we're talking the 1980s when mm-hmm. I was, you know, I worked, I made $5 an hour at the convenience store. I gave all my money back to the guy who employed me because I bought all the comic books off his spinner rack. <laughs> So he just got, I basically worked for comic books, but back then they were 75 cents a piece. So if I worked, 
you know, it got five fifty an hour, six bucks an hour. I'm like, great. This is like, I just got six. I just made six or seven comic books and I just right. kept building up, building up, building it up. So, um, so yeah, no, I've, I always have loved reading about, but more recently, you know, I haven't had as much time to do that and, uh, have been focusing more on just actually the selling of them. We wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for this episode. Based on the knowledge I have from collecting them. That's awesome. So it currently seems that collectibles, obviously that's what we're talking about, are good money. I mean, if you find the right ones, and I know the drops, you know, whether they be Funko drops or whether they be a video game drop or, you know, something that's tied to something that's collectible, like they sell really well. Like they'll say they will sell within the hour and all you have to put is, you know, receipt in hand or, you know, in hand and whatever. And people can sell it. But my question is, and this is a question I always have looming, even though I don't know when we're going to have a reset. I hope we don't. And maybe we already did and we didn't know about it. But uh, do collectibles do well during a recession? Collectibles do well all year, every month. They are... I would say pretty much in like there's certain exceptions, like there's certain trends that come and go, but there are always people out there who want to buy collectibles because it's just part of, it's part of the human condition that people love to complete things. They want Mm -hmm. to have everything of something. And so there's always going to be people out there that want to buy that type of stuff. And there's always going to be people that want to reconnect with their past and they want to get things that have that nostalgic quality to it. So it, it never, it never runs dry. I mean, that's why if you could build, and I was just recommending this in one of my videos, which is that, you know, if you want to help, if you're having slow sales and you want to increase the chance that you could continue to have sales throughout the year, you don't necessarily have to specialize in vintage and collectible, but just like I always make sure I have some clothes available in my store have some vintage and collectible in your store. So at least you're giving people something along those lines. You know, again, even you don't have to specialize in it, but it, it really is, I would say, as immune as immune can be um, from a recession or from a slow down, you know, normal slow times, like a January would be a slow time. Um, but, you know, then again, I just, I put up a roll of an old vintage Roloflex camera that literally sold in hours for $500 and I sourced it for free. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, yeah, I mean, so, but you know, there you go. There's a a traditionally slow month, January, and there's a guy waiting. And by the way, when I put that up, I mean, I can't tell you how many people are trying to pounce on it and buy it. Mm. People offer me 350, 300, 400, 450. Here we go. I I knew I wasn't going to go. I had it for 600, wasn't going to go below five. And eventually person came along. Boom. Now here's where we get back to what you said earlier. If I'm working full time, and I quickly need the cash and I have it up for, you know, let's say $5.99 and someone offers me that 400 you may be more willing to take that and less likely to kind of sit and wait for the five. So it just depends on your situation. I'm glad you point that out because that's, that's very, very true. I mean, I can tell that yeah. now was my second year of full-time where when I, I always tell people enjoy part-time if that's what you want to do, because it, it is really nice. Yeah, You know, I, I do. I mean, the, the one thing I do miss is I could let things sit and I could counter until I got that one price. But right. I'm thinking of like right. today, today was a slow day. I got a low offer and I didn't take it. And now I'm like, I should have taken it because I didn't have sales that followed. Right. So now I'm like, all right, whatever offer now, luckily this isn't live. Right. Cause right now I could get a bunch of offers and I'll just accept it and people are going right. to get some good sales. But 
It's it's so true because that is that is one of the big differences between part time and full time that you can wait and take your time and be more selective. You don't have to move stuff as fast. So I'm glad you pointed that out because I think that'll help a lot of sellers out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when it comes to collectibles and and, and you know I I don't want to you know harp on this too long, but I know it's one of your specialties. And and again, I'm yeah. amazed that that you do so much beyond just the collectibles, right? Like you're you're an expert in in the comic books and those collectible items, but then you're also doing clothing and that, that kind of, that shows a, a, a lot of talent and, and willingness to learn new things. Uh, but when it comes to collectibles, like you showed that one that you had that was graded right now, is that something, are you like buying graded comics and graded collectibles? Are you willing to go and like put in the work to, to get that stuff done on your own? Um, when you say am I buying, you mean, am I buying for graded? Are you specifically asking about graded? Like, will I go and, specifically get a book graded do you right. mean or will yes. i yeah um in general getting a comic book graded is 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 a tricky thing i i have an actual video on that whole topic on on whether or not you should do it or not and um you really have to know your stuff you really have to know about grading and you need to be pretty confident, pretty assured in terms of what grade that comic book is going to come out as. Because you can see here, I'll show you a couple of examples. Like this is the 5.0 I showed you. This is a, um, I'll show you another one here. This is Adventures on the Planet of the Apes from 1975. It's the first issue. It's graded a 9.8. That's very rare to find something above a 9.8. The grading scale goes up to 10. Once in a while, I've seen one, and sometimes you could see even a 9.9. .9. But every one of those decimal points from a 9.8 to one here, you could see a Doctor Who issue right here for Marvel Premiere. That's a 9.6. The difference between those could be huge. We're talking thousands to even tens of thousands of dollars wow. for two decimal points, depending on what the comic book is. Wow. So you've got to factor in in terms of what the price is going to be. If you sold it ungraded versus graded, and there's a great comic book website, it's a great resource. It's free to sign up. I have no investment into it or anything. It's called a comicspriceguide.com. And you could go on there, set up a free account, and it will tell you once you log in, you plug in the comic book, it will show you what it's worth ungraded versus graded. And sometimes mm -hmm. that difference is non-existent. It's actually identical. Sometimes it's just a little bit more and it's not worth taking the time out because it's usually going to take weeks to months to get it back unless you fast track it, which now you have to pay more money for. Mm. So just for your basic average comic book, like you're looking at spending 30 to $50 to get it graded. Mm. And so you have to make sure like, okay, if I'm going to do that, when I get it back, I've got to be, it's got to be that I'm going to make hundreds of dollars more right. having it graded versus not. And most times it's just not worth it. So what I will do sometimes though, when I buy out collections or I might specifically, you know, target books like this, I may go out and specifically, you know, buy something like this as an investment and then hold on to it or put it up on eBay for three times the price that I bought it for and, you know, see you know, what happens with it. And mm -hmm. I know that the, it's just going to appreciate over time anyway. Those kind of things don't depreciate. So yeah, sometimes I will go out and specifically, you know, target something like that. But for the most part, when I'm buying comics and collectibles, I'm buying things in, in big bulk, um, big bulk, I'm buying big bulk collections or big bulk uh, pickups or orders. Nice. Awesome. So <laughs> I've had multiple opportunities to buy all kinds of comic books and I always walk away. I, I I don't think there's been one time 
Because what I do, I start, I start going through it. Number one, I feel overwhelmed. And we've talked about the overwhelmed feeling. The next one is the grading. And, you know, you're just talking about like, so is there, is there, I don't know, it, maybe it, there isn't a hundred percent answer for this, but is there a time when it's okay for a comic book to have like a page torn or, a, a, you know, a side, you know, mangled or <laughs> discoloration? Yeah. Like, is that still, yeah. is there still yeah. value in yeah. things? Yeah. Okay. In fact, if you go to my latest, what's sold on, um, what's sold on eBay, uh, video, uh, I actually start off with the number 10 item was two captain midnight comic books from 1947 that I found at an estate sale. It was in an old barn. They were on top. They were exposed to the elements for, for decades. Um, corners were torn off. Um, the spines weren't completely secure, but the main part of the cover was still, was still intact. Um, they were consecutive issues, I believe, and they sold for 55 bucks, both wow. of them together. The reason for that is because again, most of the cover was there. Um, so, and still had some nice bright color to it, but I did have a bunch of damage, but see collectors for comic books, they will pay for a damaged comic book like that. If the uh, demand is high for the character or moderate and the supply is very low. And with that, the supply is low and the demand, I wouldn't necessarily say it's it's high per se, but it's at least moderate that for the collector base, they want to, they, they would love to have those books. And so they're willing to, 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 to pay up even though there's damage on it. Now, if we take this, uh, a book that has, you know, low demand and high supply or just low demand, and you put that same amount of damage on the book, you're not going to be able to sell it. So condition usually, you know, is a very big, a very big, it, I mean, it always is. It's always an important factor that ties into the worth of the comic, but it's just less of a factor when there's not as many of those books around. So sometimes guys, uh, people will even pay for, um, comic books where the cover is just ripped off. So if you go and look at some of the early amazing Spider-Mans that some of them will sell for thousands of thousands of dollars without a cover, because you just can't, it's just, first of all, for many people having one with the cover, it's, it, they just can't access it. It costs too much money. So they're willing to fork over two to $3,000 for a coverless one versus 10 to 15,000 for one that has the cover. And what a lot of people will do, by the way, is they will actually create their own custom cover and they'll mm -hmm. put that onto the uh, comic book. And so, uh, you know, and kind of create their own kind of product with it. But so, yeah, a dam uh, damaged books can sell, but it just, it really does depend on the book. It generally has to be something that would be really, really, really valuable if it was like in mint condition, you know, but if the supply, like I said, is, is super low, demand is moderate to high, you know, then you'll, you'll still be able to sell it even if it's damaged. Nice. Now, have you ever been duped and gotten like a fake or if not, like what has been your biggest, like maybe failure as far as a buy or a sell goes? And then we'll ask a win question. After yeah, yeah, this. yeah. All right. Um, These are the fun, juicy ones. Though. See, that's another good thing about comic books is that comic books are rarely faked. Mm -hmm. um, now, there is just it would just take too much to 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 do something like that um i mean the only thing you have to be aware of is you have to be aware of that there are reproductions uh, and this is one of the things that people who are new they get tricked into there basically let's say marvel or dc they want to 
make sure people get a chance to see the you know original appearance of of Spider-Man or of, of Batman. So they'll reproduce um, Detective Comics 27 or Amazing Fantasy 15. And it'll have the same cover, but there are subtle differences to it in which you could, if you look at it, you know, you could tell, okay, this is a, a modern version, but someone who's not experienced might think, wow, I just found, you know, one of these old original ones from like, you know, you know, you know the beginning of the century, the middle of the century. And, you know, it turns out that that's not what it is. So you got to be careful about that, but rarely people will fake stuff. I actually talked about this recently and I talked about something called uh, a double cover comic book, which is when if you ever find a comic book and you turn it over and there's another cover underneath, it's a it's a manufacturer's um, error. And they're actually worth a lot more Hmm. than your standard uh, comic book, because that other cover that's inside tends to be protected from the one that's on top. And it's Hmm. just more visually appealing as well. There are some people who will try to fake double covers and there's actual websites about how to detect if someone faked Uh one, like they'll try to buy two of the same comic and attach another cover inside of it to try to make a fake double cover. I've never personally seen that, but there are examples of things like that that are out there. Hmm. But, um, but no, so for that reason, since there's not really a counterfeiting or a, a fake problem out there with comic books, unlike so many other areas, right? Like, you know, clothing and, mm-hmm. you know, fashion brands and purses and even Funko Pops. There's fake Funkos and stuff, fake Pokemon cards. There's really not a fake comic counterfeiting comic book industry out there. Hmm. So what are the telltale signs that something is outside of, like, like, I know the price determines like when it was made. That's one thing I learned. And maybe I, I don't know what I'm talking about. So Dom, if you can enlighten me, but I know price matters, like the price that's on the cover. Yeah. You mean the, right. The price on the cover. Correct. Are yeah. there other telltale signs that I'll tell you as vintage or is that like the go-to? So um, the, the, as long as it's not a reproduction, but um, yeah, so uh, the price is going to tell you a lot. So for example, if it says 10 cents on there, you're dealing with, for example, a golden age comic book, you know, one that was, you know, made in either in the 1930s, 1940s, early to mid 1950s. Then there's silver age and bronze age. So it goes up, it goes up to 12 cents to 15 cents to 20 cents. It just keeps going up and up and up until, you know, the 1980s, you're dealing with 75 cent bucks, dollar bucks. Then when you get into the 1990s, you're dealing with more to dollar 25s, dollar 50s. And then from there, it just started to get crazy, like I was talking about earlier. So that's one thing to look for. Um, another thing, and this is something that you just got to get by experience, but it's a joke among comic collectors. They all know this. Uh, even Chuck Rosansky, who I mentioned earlier from Mile High Comics, he joked about this in one of uh, in an actual movie documentary he specialized in, which is that. You could open up a comic book and smell it and mm. you could pinpoint it to what decade that it's from oh, huh. because the, 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 uh, book just kind of like the paper, it just kind of, um, naturally kind of degrades a little Ages. bit with age and it creates a certain type of smell. So you could pick one up and go, ah, I know that's a 1970s comic yeah. book. Now, granted vintage. Could, yeah. You, yeah. Right. Right. You could open it up and you could look inside and you could see the date inside. And that's actually another point to bring up to people. Cause a lot of people don't know how to find this because, uh, not every comic book has the, uh, year right on the cover once in a while it's there. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's not there. And sometimes what you have to do, you just open the book and on the very bottom on either the cover or on the 
opening page next to the cover, it's there. Sometimes you have to turn a p- another page over to look for it. And then every once in a while, and this is more for the modern books, you have to flip to the back mm. and look there. Uh, and it will tell you the issue number, the volume, and it will tell you, uh, and it'll tell you the year. I, I, so I love the, oh, sorry. I was going to say, I love the vision of you going to a, uh, to buy like a bulk order of, of, of these comic books and the collectors watching you like look through them and you're smelling them like that would be great. I know you don't do that, but I just can imagine that Maybe would be he awesome. Maybe he does. Maybe he does. <laughs> I'll take, yeah, I love, yeah, it's just a, a comic book collectors joke that they should uh, have a cologne that has that, they call it the comic book scent. But I'll give you one other thing just to look at real quick. Okay. This just be a visual for you. Uh, art. The art on the cover is, is key. Okay. So look at this one. Okay. You could tell this is a vintage 1950s. People do not draw like this anymore. Mm. They just don't. So if you looked at this, you would say, wow, like that is there's like just the way the lettering, the calligraphy, Mm. just the way that was done. Compare that to this is a commemorative uh, comic book magazine for 9-11. Okay, they are vastly different. Now, they're both nice pieces of art, Mm -hmm. but they're drastically different in terms of what they look like. This is this one here. This one here is worth about 10 bucks. Whereas this one here go for anywhere for a hundred to $300. Mm. So, but that's because it's sealed and it has that, and it has the, you know, it's the highest graded one. But, um, so uh, I would, that's another thing I would say is to look for art. If it looks like really cool, old art, definitely look into that. And one other point I would make is don't make the mistake of thinking is a lot of people do this is they find one of the most common things. They'll find an old comic book. It's like a Disney comic. Like they'll find a Pluto one or a Daffy Duck or or Popeye or something like that. Like the real cartoony ones. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, wow, look at this. I found this old book. It's from 1947 or 1950. And they think that they struck gold. And Here's the problem. No one wants it. Mm-hmm. And they're usually pre- really damaged, like mm-hmm. really damaged. But it the reason why people won't pay for it, even though it's really damaged because people just don't really want it. Unless you found like something really spectacular, like the first time Popeye was in a comic book or something mm-hmm. like that. But for the most part, those real cartoony ones, people don't want what they want is war related ones, soup, like military ones, superhero ones, you know, like your traditional uh, Batman, your Superman, your Wonder Woman, the iconic characters, you know, like the Aquaman. And here's another one huge huge collector's market for this anything that is uh vintage horror so things like vampirella things with uh mm. tomb of dracula on it even like things from the these don't have to be from like the 1950s i mean there's things like old tales from the crypt and stuff like that mm. but even you know like i said some of these books date back to the 1970s like you know eerie magazine is another great example oh anything that has like you know ghouls and zombies and vampires and stuff People eat that stuff up. I mean, those things are guaranteed sellers if you find stuff. And a lot of sci-fi stuff, too, uh, will sell really well. Even, even guys, Westerns, old Western stuff, depends on what you find. That stuff you more have to find in bulk. Like, there's not a lot of people looking for Roy Rogers and Gene Autry if you found individual books. But if you found a whole bunch of it, a whole bunch of Roy Rogers, a whole bunch of Gene Autry books, believe it or not, there's still some people out there that are going to pay some good money for, for something like that. So some things you have to lot together. 
other things you could sell better as individual issues. Nice. So what's been like, what's been your holy grail find? Like the one where you're like, I can't believe I found this. Like I've got this. This is amazing. Like what's been your number one, like made you happy? Number one would have to be um, Giant Size X-Men number one. Uh, That one was amazing. That was I actually got that through one of the Craigslist ads I talked about. Now, a lot of people who follow me know this story, but um, there's a guy basically who who worked for the got junk company, you know, junk removal clearance, uh-huh. and he was clearing out all these estates, and he was putting everything in his big trailer. And he reached out to me and he said, "Hey, I have this trailer. I have all this stuff filled in here, and my my girlfriend or fiance wants me to clear it out. So if you want to come take a look at it, you can." And the, the funny thing about this that I have not told about this story yet, even though I told it a million times, so I'll get another first. When I, I first exclusive. Like, when I first looked at the picture, most of what I saw were just boxes, just mm. like behind me, just look like big boxes. Mm. And I was like, mm, I wrote them back. I'm like, you know, here's kind of what I'm looking for. I'm more looking for like more collectible kind of pieces. He's like, no, I have that stuff too. You just have to come look. So I'm like thankful that like he wrote me back and mm. told me that. Cause then when I got there, found a bunch of stuff. That's actually, I think how I first met you guys. Mm-hmm. If you remember, because I put it on Instagram, that's the hall where the first box I came to is is actually a tote and there were old vintage Pokemon sets and um, uh, uh, Magic. Magic the Gathering. gathering. I remember that episode where we talked about that. Yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I flipped one, I flipped like the first box, one one box for like $800. It was like (sighs) crazy. And there were just multiple ones of these in there. So I just kept Every night I was just putting up a new one, just oh. selling it. Here's one that went out for $800, one that went out for, you know, $500, $300. And I wound up giving, I spent $50. Jeez. So it was crazy. Nice. But anyway, so I said to him, I said, Hey, you know, I'm also interested in comic books. So he's like, all right, come back another day. Cause I couldn't get everything out of there. He's mm-hmm. like, come back another day and I'll bring the comic books. I have those at home. I'm like, okay. So he, he brings the comics. He gives them to me. I flip through them. I look at them. There's a bunch of old Captain Americas and stuff in there. I didn't even have time to go through them all. So I bring them down here. They're literally sitting here next to me for a year. Oh, man. <laughs> I didn't even go through them all yet. So finally, I said one day, I was like, you know what? I got to go through this box already and look what's in there. So I start going through and I'm like, no way. Because this is a holy grail book. Okay. So it was in what I would consider fine condition. So a comic book logo that means, or, or lingo, that means that it's like, it has like, like a mild to moderate degree of damage. And mm-hmm. like, there's, um, you know, there's not like, there's nothing torn off, but it has like some creases, has some indentations and stuff like that. I put it up and sold it within five minutes for $1,250. Nice. And the, I literally had like, pretty much nothing into it. I mean, if you yeah. think about it, cause I already, you know, made all my money back with the po- with uh, Pokemon and the magic. Uh, uh, magic, the gathering stuff. Oh. So now it was like, that was just profit at that point. It was crazy. I couldn't believe it. And you know, it just goes to show sometimes you need to go through your stuff a little <laughs> bit quicker because I didn't realize I had a thousand dollar bill, you know, sitting right next to me this whole time. Yeah. I mean, if, if our listeners aren't convinced to, tr- to at least maybe try Craigslist ads by now, I don't know what will convince them because I, I'll tell you what, like I'm convinced I'm, I'm going to, I mean, it's one of those things I've always, I've, I felt like the ads are almost oversaturated. Like everything that I'm interested in buying, like, Oh, I'm gonna look up some cameras or I'm gonna look up lenses or whatever it is. And I just see ads already of people buying that. So I'm like, Oh, these markets are already like people, people have the corner on it. But I mean, 
there's there's got to be room. And like you said, if people are sending out messages to multiple ad, ads, you know, there's still potential, it sounds like, to uh, to make those sweet sales. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you got to you you got to also just think, you know, sometimes you have to do something. I talk about this in my um, in one of my videos on on the crisis ads, is you got to try to find a way to make your ad stand out. So I use a lot of bold, bright, flashy colors to jump out. And I'm also very consistent with it. So, you know, I make sure I refresh it every few days. And now, you know, I'm like a consistent presence on there for years. Like people just know, like mm-hmm. maybe they came across a couple of years ago and they might wonder, hey, I wonder if that guy's still there with that flashy comic book ad. Because mm-hmm. I see him there all the time. So they'll think that's more legit because you're 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 up there more. Your so presence, yeah. And one of the other things I would mention in terms of if you're kind of a little bit hesitant on jumping into into comic books. This is my advice to people. I get this all the time is that first you have to know about the price that I'm talking about. And you have to remember that it's going to take a while before you come across someone who's willing to sell it to you for that price that I mentioned to Mm -hmm. get it at about 10 to 20 cents per comic book. Um, But I would say try to start off with a collection that in comic book world is relatively small. So this might sound like a lot to you, but it's really small for us, which would be a few hundred comic books. Mm. Okay. Like your average long box is going to be, if they're bagged and boarded, that's going to fit about 275 comic books. You know, so um, a short box is going to fit about 140 to 150 maybe in there. So it depends if they have the bags and boards on it. So remember that as well. Um, and, And start small. And try to get it for that and then see what you could do it. It's going to take you time because you're just starting out. Try to lot things into themes. All those books are not going to sell individually. Mm-hmm. Got to put them into themes sometimes. You're going to probably find some particular issues in there that are valuable in and of themselves that you could sell. But then a lot of other ones you got to kind of theme together. And so you do that and then you just, you know, it, it does. it is something that takes time, but mm-hmm. um, you eventually can see how your relatively small investment, let's say a $60 investment just yielded you a thousand dollars over time. It might take you a couple months to get that, but you know, and then if you, if you could scale that more in the future, you know, you, you'd be in a pretty good situation, but you got to experiment. The, the mistake a lot of people make is to say, I want to get into comics and they go out and they buy a collection for the first time. They buy five to six thousand comic books. Oh, just that's so overwhelming to me. Yeah, now that that I would not recommend. Mm. I have done that, but I'm saying I have a lot of experience. I would not recommend doing that mm. the first time because you will completely get overwhelmed, and then you're going to just say you're going to eventually give up, and you're going to say, "I just got to sell this to somebody else," and you're going to take a loss. Yeah. So start start with a small collection, and then slowly build up from there. If you find you had success with it. Oh. All right, so I went into the primetime treasure hunter archives of videos, oh, no. and I <laughs> and I watched I watched a few, and I wanted to talk about the first one. So your first one was about spray cans, it, it was, no, but it was really good. Like it, it was something I didn't know anything about. So I was like, wow, like this is pretty interesting, you know. And I'll keep an eye for these spray cans. You should check it out. Everyone who's listening, go check out his first video and give him a thumbs up. Oh my gosh! Now my question is, what what led you? Because you know in the reselling community right i remember when we first got on and it kind of died down but we had a lot of people like oh here you are like why are you sharing this like we you guys have already you're only adding to the destruction of reselling blah 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 
So what led you to take that step and make that first spray can video or, or just begin sharing overall? Okay. Well, so the, the spray, the funny thing about the spray cans is that I actually, the picture that I show up there of that, I show all these spray cans that actually was somebody who was doing the same kind of thing I was doing. That actually came from someone's ad who he put, that guy had an ad up just like with that picture in it telling people he's looking for vintage spray cans. Oh, wow. He's like, nice. if you have vintage spray cans, I will buy them from you. He didn't say why. He didn't tell people how much money was in it, but he was trying to recruit vintage spray cans. That's why I tell people, like, find whatever niche it is that you like and, you know, put an ad up about it, put multiple ads up. So hmm. that's where I got that from. I thought it was interesting. And I said, you know what? Just like you said, I said, I think that's going to be surprising to a lot of people. I don't think a lot of people are going to know about that. And so, I'll put that up there and I, maybe that'll be a good like initial video. Then we'll see what people think. And, you know, some people liked it. So I just kind of took it from there. Um, in terms of the sharing, why I decided to share, um, you know, this partly gets back to my job and that I do some kind of, I do some teaching, you know, it's in a, it's in a, it's in a hospital. It's an academic medical center. So I've done traditionally like a lot of lectures and stuff like that. So I like to, to educate. That's just like part of what I like to do. And I love to learn. I think you'll do better as a reseller if you love learning about so many different things in life. Mm -hmm. If you love history, like it's a perfect thing to be in because there's just so much history and the stuff you're going to find in reselling. So I love that stuff. And, um, and I love finding things that, you know, people just didn't necessarily know about and being able to share that. I think that's just, like a fun, enjoyable thing to kind of surprise people with some stuff. Like I did a video recently about how much money you can make selling pine cones, <laughs> which you can get for free. And you could sell pine cones, certain kinds of pine cones for crazy amounts of money. You wouldn't even believe it that you could find in Oregon and even some in, in California. So you got to check out that video to see how much you could get out of pine cones. But so I, I just like doing that kind of stuff. And um, I don't really feel like for the vast majority of the things that we're putting up there that it's really uh, a problem because for a lot of the items that I'm sharing as 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 bolo type of items, these are not things that you're just going to be able to necessarily like run to Walmart and then go pick up and totally ruin the supply chain. You know, these are things you're going to have to do some work to be able to find, and you'll be fortunate if you come across some vintage spray cans if you dig into someone's garage, right. add an estate sale, and put the work into it. And there's only going to be a couple of them there. And then the other thing to remember that's important is that. Out of 100 people that watch that video on vintage spray cans, how many of those people, even they have the knowledge, are actually going to take that and then start trying to go out there and actively find vintage spray cans? A mm -hmm. very, very few amount of people are going to do that. So there's a lot of people out there. They have the knowledge. They, they've, they've acquired it. They know what to do. But then they, they're not necessarily going to go out and execute on that. So that's why I think overall the general risk to resellers with that type of stuff is, is pretty low. I mean, now that's different from, like I said, if you found some amazing deal at Walmart and you tell everybody about it on YouTube, well, now everyone might go out and go buy that at Walmart and that might screw things up. But beyond that, for the vast majority of stuff we're getting out of state sales, these more unique pieces, um, you know, or, or lower availability finds, I don't think there's a big risk. Okay. That's good to know. Um, I always have a question I like to ask uh, the, the people that we're interviewing, and that is, 
basically, I mean, you've got obviously an incredible story, not just with reselling. I mean, the knowledge you have, the experience you have, what you're doing on social, that's amazing. You've also got an incredible job that, I mean, you know, working in a hospital, uh, being, you know, a psychologist and helping people, it, it's amazing. And so I, I always like to ask, like, if you could tell somebody or tell our listeners, like maybe one or two pieces of like life advice, like here are the things that like maybe I live by or, you know, some things that will help change your life or goals or what, are, what, what would be the piece or a couple pieces of advice that, that you would give to our listeners? Well, I almost kind of hesitate to bring this up, but I'm not going to because um, it really is from the heart. I did this the other day on my channel, which was um, I talked about and you know, you guys will appreciate this in California is the Mamba mentality, mm -hmm. uh, the Kobe mentality, mm -hmm. which is, you know, you are just whatever it is that you have a passion for and that you love, just try to pour your, your heart into it and just try to be best and just try to overcome obstacles and try to outwork, you know, even, you know, you're, if you feel if you want to look at the, some people as maybe our competition to you, just tr try to try to work harder than them. Like if you're at the state cell, for example, you could look at some of the other people there as competition. So that's why I said I'm going to, you know, like Survivor to say kind of outwit, outlast, mm -hmm. out, out play. Like yeah. I kind of look at it that way. I mean, I feel like, all right, you know, I'm going to stay in this room longer than every single one of you if I need to, mm. to make sure I dig all the treasures out of here. You know, I'm not going to just, you know, walk right out. So um, I try to use that approach in terms of being patient and working hard. And um, I think hard work is really the main thing. I mean, I think that's what I've built my life around. I'm not necessarily, you know, the smartest person. I didn't even tell people for the longest time when I started my channel that I was a neuropsychologist mm. because I didn't want people thinking that I was trying to, you know, make them feel like I was smarter than them or something. Cause it's not about that. It's really, it's more, I feel I've gotten where I've gotten from motivation and from, and from passion and from working hard. I mean, yeah, obviously you need to have a certain amount of intelligence mm. and uh, and stuff like that. But, but it's really the, really the hard work part, as I would say is, uh, cause I think a lot of people give up too early when they're, you know, there's that, you, you know, that cartoon that you see on Instagram a lot where there's that one guy who's, who's digging and he's just short of the treasure. Mm. It's like right there. Mm. And he decides to turn around. Whereas the other person keeps going. Yeah. There's a lot of people that do stuff like that and they want to have instant success or close to instant success. And if they don't get it really fast, they just stop persevering. And I'm just somebody who just, We'll just keep persevering. And if I keep getting knocked down, I just, that's why I love the movie Rocky so much. Mm. You know, he just keeps getting knocked down and he just keeps getting back up. He keeps getting punched in the face. He keeps getting back up. So I think about that stuff all the time, just like, you know, persevere, persevering, um, you know, through adversity and also just being thankful for what we have. You know, we're lucky to be in this situation. And, um, you know, uh, Gary V talks about this a lot that, you know, what would our grandparents or, our parents have done, you know, when they were younger, if they had social media available to them so that, you know, cause when my dad came home from work at seven 30, that was it. He was done. Mm. He, he, he worked his butt off. My grandfather came home from work, you know, in, in Queens, New York, pressing garments all day with no air conditioning when he couldn't, he couldn't do anything else when he came back from mm. that to give his family a better life. That was it. My dad funded his college through going to Vietnam and funding it through the GI bill and working for Merrill Lynch during the day. And then at nighttime, going to school to be the first person in our family who got a college degree from, from Fordham. Mm. So 
that's another thing. Like you asked, like it goes back to like the role model, like, but it all ties in together, right? You know, like that's a great example of I'm doing kind of the same thing. You know, he did that. He went to school after working hard during the day while I'm going, I'm working hard and I'm coming back and I'm still doing more to try to support my own family. So it's just, it all boils down to hard work, guys. Yeah. Hey, that's awesome. We really And working smart. And yeah. working smart. Yeah, you do it's true. Very smart. true. Yeah, it is very true. All right. So where do you see the state of reselling? I mean, we're in 2020, technically almost new decade. It depends if you think 2021 is the start of the new decade. But do, do you see things moving? I mean, obviously with collectibles, you think you believe it's going to keep moving. Do you see that overall or do you, you know, where, where do you see it? Um, I, well, it's interesting. I think it's going to continue to grow. The thing I'm most curious about though, is how the platforms are going to emerge and Mm. if what, what the landscape is going to look like with regards to eBay and Amazon, because, you know, I I just mentioned this the other day in my, my Facebook group is that eBay is not dead. Uh, people say eBay is dead. eBay is weaker eBay is weaker, but I've been hearing eBay's dead for 20 years. <laughs> that is it's true. Not, you can go not, back in time. You can right. actually Google that and find people talking about it like in 07. Totally. Totally. It's just been saying all the time. So, you know, there's a lot of, sure. eBay has weaknesses. They have things to work on and they need to get better. They are losing market share. Um, their gross volume of sales is, is, is going down. They're, you know, making money and staying afloat by selling off shares and by, getting money from sellers, you know, with promoted listings and stuff like that, but that's not how they're going to be able to sustain themselves over the long term. Um, So I'm curious what other platforms are going to emerge during this decade that might continue to take market share away and maybe even start running away with things a little bit more and being a stronger competing force to eBay because the problem is right now there's really not a good viable alternative to eBay. There's alternatives. There's Mercari, there's Poshmark. If you know Poshmark's trying to break into other things like hard goods and stuff like that. You know, there's Depop and stuff like that. But there's nothing that can really truly compete with that. I mean there's Amazon, of course there's Amazon. But if that even that's different how that whole thing is set up with most people doing FBA and eBay doesn't really have that set up. Some people have speculated that Amazon might actually purchase eBay now, or they might We've try about to. that. Yeah, yeah or, or they might try to. I don't know if they could do that with antitrust laws and stuff, but there'd be a bunch of opposition to that, I think. But I wouldn't put it past Amazon to do that, to just try to knock away a who they probably think is annoying them with the ads that they have that come out every time that, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I think that's to me, that's the most curious thing. And the more, the most unknown thing is, um, is what's going to happen with the platforms, what platforms are going to be the most, you know, by the end of this decade, we should go back at this video which which ones are going to be the most popular ones. Will eBay still be the most popular one? Will it be something completely different? You know, remember when I go back to when I first started Yahoo auctions was a huge deal, guys. Like, ev- like so many people are using that. No, it doesn't exist anymore. You know, so like just because it exists now and it's so popular, like we could be stuck in the moment, it could totally go away. Remember when MySpace was a big thing? Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting I mean? is so, eBay is one of the few dot com things that lasted. You know, it did. I mean, there's like yeah. maybe three, and eBay was one of them. So that's why it I'm did. like, I'm, I'm interested. You know, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. I want eBay to succeed, and I want them to improve. But 
Um, that's the main the biggest unknown because right now we don't know who their new CEO is going to be. Mm. And we don't know what changes they're going to make. We don't know what that person's mentality is going to be. I think they need someone who comes in there who's going to be a visionary and who's going to really see that they need to grow their platform based on, the, I mean, of, of course they have to take buyers into account, but they, they really need to take the seller experience into account more. I think they're trying to do that a little bit more, but man, they have a lot of uh, areas to grow on with that. So to me, that's curious. I mean, reselling is never going to go away. It's not going to stop. If you want to make a living in it, there's always going to be people out there who are going to be able to crush it. You're always going to be able to do that in, in vintage and collectible. And there's going to be people who are always going to be able to do that in clothes. But you know, like I said, you're going to have to find your way to separate out from it because clothing is becoming more and more saturated. Mm. So you have to be able to find those more special pieces, you know, those old that ties into vintage though with clothes. We didn't even mm. talk about that. Mm-hmm. Vintage concert t-shirts, for example, you know, mm. you could be the, if you're the only person that found a big lot of concert tees that you have up at that particular time, you're going to make a lot of money by doing that compared to if you're, se- if you're selling, you know, um, champion, you know, t-shirts that, you know, just, you know, came out a couple of years ago or something like right. that. So, yeah. Agreed. All right. So where can people find you again? It's just in case they're looking for you. Uh, yeah. So on YouTube, it's primetime treasure hunter on Instagram. It's prime underscore time underscore treasure. And, um, if you want to join the Facebook group that I mentioned earlier, uh, that's called the reselling resource center. So RRC. So just type that in and, uh, you'll find us there. Like I said, we have over 15,000 uh, members there and, um, we're just doing a lot of things to help support uh, sellers there. We have like seller thons in there. We have a support that seller Sunday event where mm-hmm. we pick one person from the group and everyone's got to try to buy from that one person. Nice. So every week there's someone who's making like hundreds of dollars of sales that one day, like they're just getting crushed by, you know, the group ordering from. So we That's just, awesome. yeah, we just try to do like lots of events like that. Well, Dom, I definitely look forward to having you back on yes. the Purosa podcast. And we look forward to be hanging out with you because yeah. we had a good time last time. It was a really you good did. time. You, so you had a good time. I don't know if you saw this, but I've been uh I I brought back thrift battles. Have you have you oh, seen yeah, them? Oh yeah, yeah. I've seen them, yeah. So I've run three of them so far, and I have a couple more slated to come on. And the whole goal is I did two last year. We're going to do a total of 12 this year. So um, uh, at the end, we're going to wind up having uh, like, uh, and we're going to get to like an elite eight and a final four. (laughs) So I do have a couples battle that's coming up. I didn't announce it yet. I'm not going to say to people, but if you're interested and you don't have to mention it, say this now, but it would kind of be cool if I could, if we could have like a team, like a pure hustle podcast yeah. versus another combo of people out there. Yeah. So that way, when that, whoever that couple team is that wins that battle, they have someone else to take on. That's also a, a duo. They don't have yeah. to be a couple per se, right. but you know, someone who's known as kind of working together would yeah. be interested so i don't know if you guys are interested in that epic battles of thrift store it'd be it'd be fun it'd be fun we're we're, we're ready to go yeah so, Count so, us in. We're so the funny thing is mike doesn't like sourcing together right because it gets competitive but yeah, if but we're working as a fun, team yeah, well, yeah for a way, team it's a whole different ball game that's right like the way i envision it is you guys would kind of look amongst your items mm. and you know you'd say all right this is the one we want to go in round two this is the one we want to go around round one or round three and it goes up to potentially five rounds mm. 
And I think each one of them so far has gone to the fifth round was mm, the deciding yeah. round to figure out who won. Wow. One of them might've been fourth round. I'm not sure, but I think they all went fifth. So it came down to the end for each one. So it's been a lot of fun for everyone involved. People have uh, gotten a lot of education out of it too. And seeing the surprise items that people bring up. But if you guys think like you could work together as a team to kind of come up with what might be the, you know, the strategic item you guys want to use during the thrift battle to beat the other team. Who knows? You guys might ride it all the way to the championship. I, I haven't figured <laughs> out the prize, what the prize is going to be, but no, you never know. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. yeah. Count us in. <laughs> all right. Hey. I'll let you guys know. Hey, so if you haven't had a chance, make sure to subscribe to Dom's YouTube channel, follow him on Instagram. Look forward to having him back on. And with that being said, make sure to be real, be relevant, and be reselling. Please. Please.